Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to curiositystream.com slash not overthinking. For less than $15 a year, you get access to thousands of high quality documentaries on CuriosityStream, and you'll also get a special link to our podcast feed with all of the ads taken out. My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hey folks, this episode is very kindly sponsored by Skillshare. Skillshare is the best way to learn anything online. They have courses on pretty much everything from photography to writing to business stuff like starting an e-commerce store. Ali even has a few courses that he won't stop going on about, about video editing, productivity, and how to study more effectively. So if you're interested in teaching yourself something online, go to skillshare.com forward slash not overthinking to get two months free. That's skillshare.com forward slash not overthinking. Big thank you to Skillshare for sponsoring this episode. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Not Overthinking. This week, we have with us a very special guest, uh, a chap called Paul Millard, who I've been following on Twitter for a while uh, and who seems like one of the sort of eminent thinkers when it comes to thinking about work and life and, and sort of yeah, how to live the good life, especially as it relates to work. Um, Paul, do you mind doing like a, a quick introduction? Uh, I don't want to like butcher, <laughs> butcher what it is or rather how you'd actually describe yourself. Yeah, I guess the cliff notes are um, 10 years corporate world, never really felt right in that world, but on paper, uh, seen as successful. Uh, Last three years I've been, I left, became self-employed and I've been trying to figure out like, how do I actually design a life I want to design, which is hard and I don't have answers, but kind of share and connect with others who are curious about those questions as I go. Awesome. And so when you say self-employed, what exactly does, well, well, what roughly does that mean? (laughs) It means I have to generate the income to cover my cost of living. So at the beginning, my my first conception of becoming self-employed was I had this idea, okay, I'm just going to leave and do consulting. Instead of doing it for a corporation, I'm going to do it on my own. I had some confidence and understanding of the market that I knew I could do that. Uh, So I did that for about six months and I kind of proved to myself I could make money and survive. Um, I then decided to just not pursue any work for a few months and started working on creative projects. I booked a trip to Asia for a month and Basically, that's when I started writing. That's when I launched my podcast. I started building a website, exploring like web design, and probably when I started engaging with people on Twitter as well, just connecting with others and finding, oh, crap, there's other people uh, exploring different paths and perhaps not just going down the straight hustle path too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, nice. And so it'll be interesting to get a bit of a sense of like your your own kind of cultural background and context. So like, how old are you now? Like mid thirties or something? Yeah, I'm 35. 35. Okay. And like, where, where did you grow up and, and all of that kind of stuff? So here is where I grew up. Um, I'm actually in my parents' home, uh, for the summer. I grew up in a small town in Eastern Connecticut. Um, not even suburbs, like, uh, a little more rural than suburbs, uh, small community, and grew up around a lot of family. 
Uh, so grew up with a huge extended family. And it's actually been interesting, coronavirus, um, work from home, my aunt and uncles and cousins, and I've had multiple cousins come back here and like work from here. So it's been kind of a re, um, it, it's been like a reliving of childhood in an interesting uh, Okay. Way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the cousins around and that kind of stuff. But yeah, there's basically about 12 of us cousins on my mom's side, which was kind of the center of my social life um and just the community in town here and four sisters um who uh are on my mom's side who kind of hold everything together and then my grandparents had a lake house my parents now live in the house behind that my aunt lives over there now my other aunt lives down the street that way my cousin with four kids lives around the corner um so I'm kind of tapping in now to a lot of the things I did grow up with. Um, but yeah, my, um, an interesting thing too is like my parents didn't go to college. Okay, uh, I yeah. didn't, I didn't grow up with any ideas that like I had to be successful. It, the only thing was like do well in school, uh, and go to college because we didn't take advantage of that opportunity and we want you to do it. Um, so those are basically the guide rails of my, of my life. And then I think I discovered, uh, I was kind of, um, blown away by like what I discovered once I landed a job at a place like McKinsey, it, I like pulled the blinders and it's like, Oh wow. This whole elite world there, there are actually people that grew up their entire lives, um, thinking about work and having to be successful and needing to make a lot of money. And yeah, I didn't really yeah. grow up like that. Um, I, everything was family. Um, and that was like the most important thing. Yeah. That's really interesting. Actually. I think for us, it, it feels like the age is becoming younger and younger at which people start to like get onto the path of like, Oh, I need to like get into a good university and then get a good job and that kind of stuff. I feel like things got serious for us, maybe around age, age 16, which in the UK is like the first kind of round of public exams that you do. Um, and so around, around about then it was like, oh, okay, I, I want to get into a good university and I want to kind of be successful or whatever. What, what was like, I mean, it, was the same for you, Ali? Yeah, I think I'd say probably even, even sooner than 16. It was, I think, almost as soon as getting into secondary school, which is, I suppose, the, the, the middle school slash equivalent in the UK around about age 11, uh, the seventh grade. Um, and because our school was quite like academically inclined and our mom's whole spiel was that, you know, it's all about academics. You've got to get good grades because then you'll get a good job. It was just sort of like an implicit thing that, oh, I guess I have to try and, you know, compete out, out compete all the other people in my year group to try and get the best exam results from the seventh grade onwards. And so for me personally, that was like a huge source of my identity when I was in school. And it was all leading towards this, you know, this dream of getting into university, preferably at a place like Oxford or Cambridge, which were always like the sort of <laughs> the the places where you aspire to go to. Wait, so when you were like 12, you were thinking, man, I, I need to get in, I need to get good grades to go to a good university. Yeah, genuinely. <laughs> really? Yeah, this was that... like, the... <laughs> yeah, it was just the life script that I was following. Oh, wow. Well, what was like the age for you, Paul? Oh, are you older, Ali? Yeah, I'm one year older. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have thought we'd have pretty similar <laughs> sort of stances on this, but that's news to me. Well, it's, it's interesting how different people internalize these things, right? Um, the age, I was always pretty good at school. I never thought about 
Um, I never worried too much about college. Um, like we had a couple good, we had like a regional public school near us and then UConn, University of Connecticut. And I always just kind of felt like, oh, my grades are good enough to get into UConn. So I'd, I never really thought about it. To be honest, I took the SAT in my junior year. I think I went to like three study classes that my school offered and then I took it and I got a decently high score. And then people were like, well, you should apply to these schools and this school. But like, I just want to go to, I'm actually wearing wearing UConn um, shirt, but I just want to go there. Um, It was a good enough school. And I didn't like, I didn't even understand what a liberal arts school was. I went to visit Holy Cross with my cousins and I couldn't understand like why somebody would go to a liberal arts school. It was just so internalized. Yeah, what, what, what actually is it? I've never been clear on this. I've heard yeah. Americans say like liberal arts and stuff, but I don't know what it really means. And, and people usually say it in as uh, like almost like it's a slur. Like, oh, you know, you've got a liberal arts education. Oh, really? Uh, at least that's, that's how I've interpreted it. Like, what does it actually mean? Well, yeah, that's, that's the... It's basically schools that gear more towards the humanities, right? So English, literature, philosophy... Um, over time, uh, different majors have kind of creeped in and made their way in. Um, you do find more engineering and sciences at these schools, but it's kind of like if you go to these schools, you study something like literature, art, and I just uh, didn't make sense to me. It's like the point of going to school is you get to get a job, right? So I was going to study engineering so I would be employable because I was good at math. It's just like I honestly didn't think too deeply about any of it. Which is is liberal arts as a distinction from like a trade school where you study engineering to become an engineer or study, you know, something to become that something? <laughs> liberal, I mean, let's just speak frankly. Liberal arts is just where rich people send their kids. Ah, okay, right. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, it's interesting, right? I think if you go back, the purpose of education, and I think this is still alive a little more in Europe, Um was kind of this worldly wisdom um, to become wise as an adult, right? Um, in America, like, university is purely thought of as a road to get a job. Like, even university presidents are saying, like, our purpose is to get people educated, right? And that's the reality for most places. I think I uh, I posted something in my newsletter today about um, showed some graphs from Harvard, basically like applied sciences going like this, like 5X um, from 2012 to 2016. And then the humanities is like less than 200 people in their class. It just keeps shrinking every year. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I get the impression from like friends in the US and, and you know, I've spent some time there that, yeah, the, the culture there is, is that university is very much solely to get you a job. Whereas I think I think here it, that that sense is still kind of there, but I don't know. Like the the default would not be to I don't know. Like I say, most people in my year, for example, did not study something that directly translated into a job, uh, and that's kind of the norm that you'll you'll like study some subject and then you'll get some job at some point. <laughs> yeah, I think it also kind of depends on what sort of environment you've grown up in. Like I remember so. Uh, obviously with our parents uh it was this 
kind of the immigrant parent mentality, which is that you go to university in order to get the job that you want in, in order to be successful. Um, and I found it and I can remember finding it a little bit baffling when I would ask kind of white friends of mine, <laughs> essentially. So what do you want to study at university? And they would say history. I'd be like, why? And they're like, because because I like history. <laughs> and it just like that concept blew me up. I was like, but what, are you going to become a history teacher? And I'm like, no, I'll just, you know, get a job. <laughs> and it just didn't really compute. And it was only after, like a, a few years in that was like, oh, okay, maybe the point of university isn't necessarily to get a trade skill like medicine so you can then become a medic. Yeah, I, I think I've always resonated with um, the experiences of higher education and careers uh, with for like immigrant mentality and generally just first generation college students. I think it's all that like, all right, you're, you're going to college, get paid, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, like, I mean, you chose a path, right? Becoming a doctor. Like to me that that is like terrifying deciding at 18. Like for me, I wanted to keep options open because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then I like one of my college roommates, he decided at like 17 to apply to the combined med school undergrad program. And it's like, wow, that's committing to your path until you're 30. Um, and then by the time he was an attending physician, like I had had like five jobs. I'd gone to grad school, lived in multiple cities. And um, it's it was always I could ne like I just was not wired for that. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's even more it's it's even more streamlined in the UK because in the US at least you have to do four years of college and then you go to med school, whereas in the UK you decide kind of age fifteen sixteen that right I want to get into med school. You spend those next two years racking up work experience, volunteering, trying to get good grades, trying to pad out your CV to do certain extracurricular activities, make sure you get to grade five in piano because then you can mention it on your personal statement. And then at eighteen you enter med school and six years later you're a doctor at twenty four. And from twenty uh, from twenty four to twenty six, you're working in your your first two years of the house job, and so that's what I've just I've just finished. I've basically been living in Cambridge for the last eight years, six years of med school, and now two years of being a doctor. And it's just one of those things like you get into the system, and then you're just on the conveyor belt. And every year there is that pressure in a way to kind of what's the next step that you're going to apply to. Um, and so this is. Uh, this is like a a point of contention I always have with my mum and other family members where they feel that I should be kind of looking to the next step of my medical training and applying to a specialty training program, which then you're in for seven years and then you get spat, spat out at the other end as a fully qualified attending or consultant in the UK. And my view of it was, well, you know, I've got some time while I'm young and unencumbered. It makes sense to just travel the world and explore this internet thing and you know, the YouTube channel is going well and the side businesses are going all right. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't I do that? So I could, yeah, I, I completely resonate with the idea of sort of coming in at 16 and then just sort of going on the, on the conveyor belt forever. Well, I see these assumptions everywhere, right? The, so the generation before us, um, I wrote about this. I wrote this essay called the boomer blockade and <laughs> it, it kind of talks about, are I mean, your parents are probably roughly that um, generation, but they came of age in a um, demographic blip where they peaked as the majority population at every age of their life in, I think, similar in the UK and the US. 
maybe not as much in the UK as they were in the US, but um, also the the UK and the US had crazy economic growth from like 1950 to essentially the early 90s, depending how you count it. And then it slowed. Um, and that kind of mindset of like, keep going works one, if everyone else is doing it, because then everyone is orienting their lives in the same way. And two, uh, if like the economic growth is providing enough interesting opportunities now progressing with slower growth or budget cuts means more competition for jobs more nonsense (laughs) and uh, overall like more frustration so for somebody that is like learning medicine from 16 to 25 in the it's more complex than it's ever been more confusing like you need a freaking break (laughs) (laughs) like it'd be crazy um from a like flourishing or like thriving standpoint of life to keep going on that path like that's the crazy thing to me like i and um i have this weird um experience of writing about these things and exploring these things and sharing my own journey people reach out to me all the time and share like how much pain they're in how much stress how much of a a weirdo they feel like in their current system and people don't talk about this and I just want it to be more acceptable for people to say, like, I need to not work for six months or three months, right? And, like, it's an amazing world. Like, what's possible? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the, especially with something like medicine where you're locking yourself, I mean, where you're, it feels like you're locking yourself into a certain path. But I feel like even with other sort of, you know, lines of work, you know, I've met like 16 year olds who are already planning to become like investment bankers and trying to get internships before <laughs> Consulting university too. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think there's like a, I don't know, looking back to when I was 16 or something, I think that I had like a re- remarkable short sightedness of like, yeah, sure. I'll just like go and commit to doing this thing for like five years, which is like a quarter of my life that I've lived <laughs> so far. And there isn't really a sense of like this, that's actually like a pretty big decision. Um, yeah. especially with like the the medicine thing i feel i think a lot of people i I certainly had a lot of friends who they were just kind of into science or something and it seemed like you know i I think prestige is is definitely a factor but it it almost felt like a willy-nilly decision of like yeah i guess i'll i guess i'll do a medical degree (laughs) um and i well so i think i i was sort of interested in going down the the medical path uh, for for some of my life, I wanted to be a vet actually, which is a similar process in the UK in terms of how much you have to study and how you get into university and all that stuff. Um, and I think it was basically just because I didn't really realize that there were other options. I think kind of like how you were saying, Ali, of like, you know, I didn't really realize you could just study history and then you'll still get a job <laughs> doing something. Uh, and it wasn't Same. until I met... <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't until I met... Like, I was sort of chatting to one of our cousins who's a few years older than us and it turned out that he he just studied maths. And mm. and that was like mind blowing for me. I was like, "Whoa, you, <laughs> you can just like study study maths." <laughs> um, and so I think like seeing someone who wasn't like super different to me going down a different path was it kind of opened my eyes to the options. But I think like 
you you mentioned the family thing being a big part of how you grew up, grew up. I think family is one of those interesting things where you basically, most people go through life with only like one data point of like right. family culture right. and like what a family is like. And I think if you're making these decisions at age like 16, 18, whatever, based on one data point about like, you know, what, what life can be like, <laughs> it's very like, yeah, it doesn't seem ideal. Yeah. I mean, it can work though for people, right? I think, um, everyone I knew growing up had a full-time job and a stay-at-home mother, right? And it was like this, it worked really well. We had a vibrant community because there were a lot of people investing in the community. The, even the fathers, I mean, some mothers worked, um, didn't work crazy hours. And I, I call this my accidental meaning hypothesis, which is that people accidentally found meaning by following the default path. But, oh, I, nice. <laughs> but I, I don't think it is as possible today. It's still possible, right? But you're not going to accidentally stumble onto it. You need to make some tweaks. You probably need to arrange daycare in a creative way. You probably need to find some remote working and flexible work options to make it work. And then you also need to find like the community where um, it's not too expensive, where everyone is a dual income working couple but it's cheap enough that some people stay at home and invest in the community. Like it's really hard. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that blows me. This is something where my mind is just like, I don't even know what to think anymore about what a default path is. Like it is crazy. We like, it never occurred to me to become a doctor. It just didn't even seem possible. I didn't really know any, my parents never mentioned it, but then like my, um, college roommate, he's from Vietnamese family. That is like, he was like trained to think that's his only purpose in life since he was like (laughs) three. Um, and he did it and it like worked for him and he likes it. Um, but yeah, it's like, Oh, how'd you come up with that? right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like your dream is really to own a, own a home, have a mortgage and do exactly what your parents did. How did you come up with that? Right. Um, and one of the most interesting things of taking this self-employed path for me is meeting so many people around the world living in such different ways that it's, it's just kind of hard to limit myself to like one path now because I know, all right, that person's actually enjoying life. That's working over there. This person's doing this. It's working. Um, this person makes 30 grand a year and that works like uh, you don't actually need 200 grand to live. Like some of my former peers, like some of my former peers would really be in physical pain if like they, um, had to lose their salary, right? They just don't have the conception that life is possible without their current way of setting up life. So most of what I've been doing is trying to explore and test myself and see like, what are the possible lives? How can I build resilience and flexibility for the future rather than um, a higher stakes life and more money and more success? Yeah. So you said that you you spent 10 years in the corporate world um, in consulting, presumably. Uh, yeah. how, how did you sort of, uh, what was the story of how you decided to leave and, uh, uh, kind of how, how you felt kind of face facing the void of not, of not having full-time employment? 
Yeah, I I don't know if I was ever suited for full-time employment. Like, I think if I knew one person who was an entrepreneur that I met growing up, I would have taken a very different path. But I just, like, didn't have those mentors or people or models to look at. Um, so I always felt a bit off. I think I approached it by always getting involved in, like, improvement initiatives. I worked in, like, change management and leadership um, operations, organizational change, culture change, um, people operations, all that kind of stuff. And the deeper I went, I kind of realized, okay, this stuff is just, it's harder than I thought, like driving positive change at a large organization is kind of a fool's errand. Um, there's just so many unintended consequences of large scale change. Um, and then, in my career, I basically would get to the point where I wanted to learn more and the balance between learning how to act at this company and learning like new things and new environments, it would tip towards learning how to act in this company. And that would happen after about like 12 months to 18 months. So I'd basically just get restless and keep moving. Um, so I left my first job after 12 months, my second job after two years. I went to grad school. I worked at a, I did a eight month fellowship while I was in grad school. Um, and then I worked at a job for 14 months, 15 months, and then two years and three months. Um, and I basically just ran out of moves. Um, and I was getting to the point conf- with confidence where I kind of knew I could like at least cover my cost of living. And I just wanted a break. Like I was working with assholes in New York and everything was about money, power and status. I hated that game and I just kind of felt trapped. And I, I think part of me just wanted to run away. Like looking back, it's almost funny how little of a plan I had. Um, I basically just set up a legal entity for my company, a website, and then went on vacation to Europe for a month to like clear my head. And so all of these sort of hops that you were doing, uh, was that just because you got bored at these jobs or was it for like a sense of progression of like, oh, I'm like moving on to the next better role or something? Yeah, it was a bit of both. I think um, when you're in the mix, right, We it, these work beliefs and like ideas about career are so deep, right? If you look up the definition of a career, it's like a steady progression of achievement. Like that's the definition um and among like the knowledge working class of people that is so deeply assumed Um, people are always asking oh what are you gonna do next like what have you gotten promoted like you're always kind of aware of your progression right and then after grad school um the three jobs i had after grad school like i bumped my salary up a bit but I was basically doing the same job. And I realized that um, you either need to keep moving um, to move up or get paid more um, or find a different way of living, right? And I th- I think I was just frustrated with who I was becoming. I was becoming a less likable version of myself, I think. I was frustrated and a little edgier, Um, cause I was angry at at, like my circumstances and the organization I was in and I don't know, I just wanted a clean slate. 
Yeah. What What was like? I mean, so it's it sounds like from what you said about your family and like growing up in rural Connecticut, that you were living quite a different life, you know, in New York at McKinsey or whatever, compared to like your parents and your uncles yeah. and, and yeah. things like that. What What was their impression of? how you were doing in life was there a sense of like oh paul paul's made it to like the big city good job this kind of stuff or uh no 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 it's it's much lower stakes uh in a in a healthy way like nobody ever uh it was like yeah he's like yeah it was like just as long as you're employed and like making good money right, yeah. he's got a job that's yeah, fine yeah yeah <laughs> okay um but yeah i think i learned more about that when i left um, because of, I think like people have gotten used to it a little more, but at first I think like my decision to leave my high paid job made other people very uncomfortable more so than me. Um, <laughs> and I mean, to me, like, I mean, I grew up, my father worked in manufacturing his whole life, like making stuff, um, like literally starting on the factory floor and like working his way up. And, um, I was just making PowerPoint slides. Like all my colleagues are sure they're having like an impact, whatever that is, but like, I couldn't find it. I couldn't taste it. I couldn't put my hands on it. Um, and it's just like, this is so silly. It always just felt so silly. And I, I always battled against that by trying to work as little as possible, which worked pretty well. Like I always had good flexibility and I never really compromised on the things that mattered to me in my personal life. Um, but it was just like, I don't know, 40 to 50 hours a week of consulting is a bit too much. I've found now I like, like working that muscle, like 15 hours a week, max, like that's more than enough. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm. I'm. I've. I've been thinking about medicine for a while. Like I. I've, yeah, I've got I this can pet imagine. Theory that there's, I, I've got, I've got this pet theory that I don't. I, I don't think anything is fun as a full time job, because <laughs> that's one thing. I am fully on board. That's my working hypothesis too. <laughs> that's nice, because <laughs> like the thing can be fun, but when it's a full time job, it has all of the baggage of the fact that it's a full time job. And medicine is fun, uh, but doing it five or six days a week, I don't know, man. And, and so I'm thinking sort of long-term strat, two or three days a week as a doctor would be quite a fun thing to do. Um, but then there's also probably a, a big part of me that's just saying that because it feels very scary to even contemplate just like fully leaving, mostly for for the for the loss of the identity like the yeah. whole being a medic has been my identity for the last like 10 years of my life <laughs> that to suddenly let go of that it just feels like a very scary thing so like how how did you think about letting go of your identity as like a you know an employed and productive member of society <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is uh this is a good question i uh i think i did a similar thing in leaving consulting right my only imagination, surprise, was to become a freelance consultant, <laughs> right? And if you asked me what I'd be doing 10 years from then, it would be freelance consulting. Um, <laughs> like Once I created space, um, well, I think first just 
becoming a freelance consultant is not what I imagined. So I, I basically imagined I'd kind of have a similar life and I'd just have a little more flexibility and get to choose my projects. What I found was a lot more space, a lot more ownership, a lot more responsibility, and a lot more ambiguity in terms of who I was. And suddenly, if I'm not in these full-time jobs, people want to know, well, what are you doing? What do you have a business? You hiring people? Oh, are you, are you growing? Do you have clients? Like, uh, what do you like? And then I would, when I started, I was in New York, I would come up here for like a couple weeks at a time. And like, I'm wandering around in the middle of the day on a Wednesday and people are like, what are you doing? And it's, it's about identity, right? Because they want to know, are you a worker? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I'm grappling with, I'm not a worker, right? The, fir the first time I faced this, I was going through a health crisis and I was out of work and I realized a lot of my life had been oriented around work, right? You decide where to live. You decide your friends are who you work with and people who make similar salaries because you can't afford the same similar cocktails unless you make similar salaries. Um, and suddenly removing from that, having my income be a little more precarious, um, not going out to dinners, it's like, oh, well, my friends still love me. Like that is what, that's what it comes down to. Will my parents still love me? Um, and I'm not going to bullshit people. Like the reality is some people won't and they might like, especially some people's parents, they might be a little harsh to you for years. Like I have friends who have been self-employed for a long time and it took their parents maybe five to seven years to accept their lifestyle. Um, that is really hard. <laughs> um, and I, I think the most important thing is like, you need to find a few friends, um, who are like taking these alternative paths. And I'm happy to have a call with you whenever you're struggling with this, Ali. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, now, um, now I'm doing similar stuff. Like I've accidentally have a YouTube channel that, took off like I don't know how that started for you but I that's happened for me now I have some income coming in from that I have my online course teaching strategy consulting skills um, I have some writing income I and then like I don't even really do consulting anymore I don't know who I am but I know I'm a human not a worker um, and I'm trying to orient life around that Oh, oh, fantastic. The, th the thing you said about people basically trying to answer the question of are you a worker <laughs> that, i think that that kind of hits the nail on the head for uh sort of how i felt so I, i've kind of been out of the full-time employment game for about two years now uh so i had a, i had like a real job if you want to call it that uh, for about a year after after i graduated and then i left to do consulting kind of contracting stuff for a friend startup and that was like my off-ramp into kind of doing my own thing and not not really you know having a real day job and I remember at the start especially when I was in the in-between phase of just kind of doing some consulting work for, for, for this for this friend startup people would ask me like what do you do uh, especially at like family gatherings like we, we went back to to Pakistan where some of our families still are for a wedding or something and so there were lots of like what do you do kinds of questions uh, and I always, I always hated those because I think at this point Ali had just graduated as a doctor and he just like started work. Yeah. And so he had like a very 
clear cut answer yeah. of like, it was oh, like nicely packaged up. Yeah, <laughs> nicely packaged up. Like I'm a worker, I'm a doctor, you know, <laughs> I'm like in the system. You've got nothing to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas like I had just spent like three months in <laughs> three months in the US, uh, and it was unclear whether I was gonna like go back and live there full time. I was like, ah, I don't know, we'll see. <laughs> it was unclear, like, <laughs> you know, what was I gonna stay at my current company, for, you know, full time or whatever. Uh, long term and so I, I never really had good answers for that and I hated that the question is basically are, are you a worker and like right. you know, right. yeah yeah it's and I think what people are asking like if you if you trace it back a lot of these work beliefs are like work is suffering that's like a Catholic view of work and work will save you that's like the more modern uh, Protestant ethic um but work will give you your life purpose, right? Um, I think what people are saying is, are you contributing, right? Um, but they don't know they're saying that. They're they're caught in like the modern um, translation of that. But if we trace it back, like we had work beliefs such that like you need to suffer, otherwise there will be no food. Right, that that was it. Yeah, yeah, that was, it. That was um, the reality. Yeah. So what your family's doing is like, are you contributing to the game? Right. But our game now is so convoluted. We have no idea to how to track like my efforts to the food that appears over here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's impossible. Right. <laughs> so we're, we're kind of lost. Like one of the interesting things I've been exploring is like, what are the work beliefs that are going to emerge? Like we've had a whole new economy emerge. Like, uh, like you're, you're making money from YouTube ads right now. <laughs> yeah. How you're not working. Like you're, I guess your videos are working. Like how do we, yeah, it, it feels like cheating genuinely. <laughs> right. Like I, I've started to earn money from YouTube, not crazy amounts, but it's like every day, it's like seven or eight dollars. It's like (laughs) that pays for lunch every day. (laughs) It does feel like cheating. And then I don't know how to account for this. Like if it ever was a crazy amount of money, I'd, and you see people like Jack Dorsey, he's trying to give away a billion dollars and he doesn't know how, right? Because he probably feels like this is ridiculous. Like I'm on cheat mode. Um, we have all these tech companies that earn exponentially more profits than companies did 20 years ago. We have no way to account for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one thing that I've, I've, I've started thinking about recently. So, um, on the note of making money from things like, like a YouTube channel and stuff, one of my main fears with the whole kind of taking a break from medicine thing is that, you know, if someone asks me, what do you do? Or, or even if I internally ask myself, what do I do? My only real answer would be, well, I guess I sort of make a bit of money from YouTube ads and sponsorships and kind of do a little bit of teaching on the side and do a bit of this, a bit of that. It's just a, a very uh, not satisfying answer. And yet now when people ask me what my brother does, I say, oh, he runs his own startup. As if that's just, uh, yes. You know, it's a category. It, yeah. it's, it's perfect. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's probably how you felt back when I was a doctor. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I still don't like, I, I think the startup thing is probably a neater answer than what you have now, <laughs> but it's, it's still like a bit of a messy answer. Cause 
I think a lot of people think, oh, so you're like unemployed or, you know, like if, you, if, you do, if you're not into like tech and stuff, it's very unclear what that actually means. Oh, I guess so. Yeah. I guess yeah. if you're into tech, he runs his own startup is a very neat answer. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's different answers for different audiences. I mean, the like relative that needs to know occupation and salary, you give them like something very tactical. It's like I'm running a consulting practice and I have a client <laughs> that pays me money. Right. Um, but then like. I mean, my my friends were like actually curious. They're like, "No, actually, like, what do you do?" Um, I mean, I try to be a little provocative when people say, "What do you do?" And I say, "Well, I I usually read a lot. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I try to spend time with my family, and I have calls with curious people on the internet." Um, <laughs> that is so provocative, my God! <laughs> and they're like, yeah, it sets off all sorts of alarm bells, but. Um, I usually just play around with that question because like I enjoy, um, making people think about like, where does this come from? Why are we asking this? Why does it matter so much? I think the the thing about the, what do you do? I mean, certainly, so like I've over the past few months, I've met like some new people and I'm always quite wary of asking them, what do you do? Uh, and I think what I'm most interested in is like, how do you spend your time rather than like the, are you a worker and, and that kind of stuff. And, and if most people have a day job or whatever, then what do you do is, is kind of asking, how do you spend your time? Like, you know, t- tell me what your life kind of looks like, right. you know? Yeah. Um, but it feels, yeah, I, I think now the, what do you do question has a lot of baggage. And so I find myself having to find more creative ways <laughs> to ask them. It, it's like, I can signal that, look, I'm not questioning whether you're a worker or not. I'm not trying to estimate your salary. I, I really just want to, you know, find out what your life looks like (laughs) i mean i think it's darker than that i think most many people are just workers and this is the thing that scares me is i i think i looked around in my early 30s and i saw my like when you're young living in a city and working even if you're working a lot you have a lot of socializing and community built around you you're going out you're orienting around meetups maybe you're dating things like that, you're part of clubs, intramurals, that like slowly starts to dry up in your 20s. And then at the beginning of your 30s, it starts disappearing. And unless you have kids and engage in a local community, a lot of people's lives are solely work. And that's it. So like the what do you do is relevant because that is their life. The one decision, their job, career, and how much they make dictates almost everything in their life. Um, so, I, like, I want to start a movement of more illegible people, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, we see political movements in especially Western nations that they're solely built on trying to identify pe- who people are. Um, that's not interesting at all. Um, traveling around the world, like everyone's got a story and a background and interest. And I love how you start out like asking me about my background because like I'm a white guy, but I, I like a lot of my role models aren't white dudes. Like, um, I, the most interesting people are always like from all over the place. Yeah. Do you, do you have a sense for like how we, how we ended up here? I I feel like when they teach you sort of history and and stuff in school, you learn a bunch of facts. But I'm curious, like, 
what 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 were people's ideas of the good life and making it in life and stuff you know 50 100 500 years ago um i'm guessing you you have a decent sense of of how we actually got here right yeah i think um if you have you ever read max weber's book the protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism um so he kind of talks about where capitalism came from and he's kind of blown away in this book and he says it's kind of amazing that we were convinced people to go work in jobs right because we had to overcome what he labeled as traditionalism and traditionalism was like you work enough to meet your needs like if you're a farmer you work the season then you take the rest of the year off you you kind of went with the flow of um, the times, right? Not everything was great back then. Um, but we had to turn work into something that was noble, right? Um, and honorable. And the Protestant Reformation came along and turned work basically from something that was looked at as like a necessary evil to something that was like the central aim of life. Um, so the central aim of life went from like something like flourishing. Um, and I, I think, especially in Europe, um, the higher classes, this was still the highest aim, right? Um, so kind of held together by um, those traditions into something where taking the American model, if you look back at like de Tocqueville when he went to America and he's like, I don't understand these rich people. They just work harder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. They don't relax. And I think... Um, if you're competing globally, right, these systems started taking control of everything, right? You can't do anything without buying it anymore, right? Like everything has been turned into something that can be purchased. And like the American style is taking over, has taken over the world as like work. Um, the, the system is so powerful, right? And I, I think what's happened is like, People don't realize that the system creates your reality, it creates your experience, and dictates your behavior. Um, Oshan Jero has wrote, written a lot about this, and he's contemplating like what are the implications of this hyper capitalism, where we're not limited by an eight-hour workday or scarce resources. Um, the whole goal is to like. Um, monetize your mind 24 hours a day and people can work 24 hours a day too so what does that mean like it's uh it's pretty crazy and we've basically just um taken this conception of leisure which is like an active participation in life or a contemplation about the mysteries of life and push that to a side right leisure is merely a break from work um now or right a way to recharge uh, the weekend so you can get ready to hustle right you see, <laughs> yeah you crush it on monday yeah <laughs> and it's i mean derek thompson's written about this as workism it's religious in nature right you see at we work they have like we live for mondays it's like what <laughs> what what is that that's so bizarre like we used to live for sundays because it was a day of rest, rest. yeah <laughs> wait so how long ago 
did the did the sort of Protestant work ethic come in? Are we talking like 1500 years or something? 1500s. Um, I mean, Luther and then Calvin kind of supercharged it. Um, I, I'm not going to get it perfectly, but Calvin basically had this idea that like there was a select few. He called them the select, and they um, they had to work, and their profession was kind of chosen for them. Um, preordained and they were destined for heaven uh, based on their work Um, right and then that kind of slowly took over more and more through religious veins and then kind of paired with capitalism um, uh, worked perfectly okay that's interesting i wonder how so whenever i think about these things it feels like that there's one there's one big need that needs to be filled of like having a you know having a, a roof above your head and yeah. my my impression is kind of that like i think if you t- if you told most people look i'm going to give you this really nice big house in a good location you don't have to pay a mortgage or something do whatever you want with your life i imagine they actually wouldn't work it, like e- even like worker type people i imagine that would be like oh okay i actually don't have to work and so like from the very little i have studied about like ancient greece and stuff like that like yeah the the impression i get is very much that working is for poor people and if you're rich you're obviously not working you're sitting around like philosophizing and like (laughs) you know doing some maths (laughs) as leisure and and stuff like that and i feel like once the once the like house thing is checked off then you're kind of free to to do all this other stuff and look i'm not sure what the housing situation was like in ancient greece but like (laughs) I, I, I don't imagine there was this, like, system around, like, mortgages and stuff where you basically have to, like, keep working to sustain this thing. I don't know. Pla- Forever. But, yeah, but Plato probably probably had, like, a, a decent house that he didn't have to keep working to, to sustain yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah, I think he called it his cave. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I mean, if you look back at Greece, basically, I mean, they had slavery um, supporting um, the, or, like elite and the highest aim of life for them was like public contemplation and like work was an evil thing like work was not good (laughs) Uh, work was seen as like ignoble and um that kind of shifted over time um but yeah i don't know i don't know if i agree with you um i think maybe in europe you'd be more directionally correct with that that people might have a taste of like how to be at leisure um but i mean you do you have friends that like talk about their sundays that are like oh, i was so unproductive today oh mate yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, this, is, this is my biggest pet peeve yeah <laughs> we're like this stuff is so deeply ingrained that we have to be doing something right <laughs> uh that i and people just like and this is one of the shocking things to me. I think people realize this once they become self-employed, which is that the more money I spend, the more money I need to work. Full-time employees and full-time employment is a great creation in terms of like wealth uh, distribution and creating security and stability. Um, but people never stop and say like, well, I've earned enough. I have the house. I could just stop working. Um, I think the identity stuff is too much to unpack and um, 
you can always just come up with more stuff you want to buy. So th- this is something that I've been sort of th- thinking a lot about because essentially, so when I was like 17, 18, I, I discovered the four hour work week. Right. Uh, and since then, kind of for the last nine years of my life, my whole thing has been, okay, I am enlightened. Therefore, I don't want to be a doctor full time. I want to be a doctor part time. And in order to be a doctor part time, I need to have these multiple streams of passive income because then I have the freedom to do whatever the hell I want. Um, and in the last kind of six months to a year, because of kind of the ex- exponential growth of the YouTube channel and the surrounding online courses and blah, 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 I have gotten way beyond the point where essentially, you know, I can afford the house over my, uh, the roof over my head. And now I'm like in this real yeah. pickle. <laughs> it's, it's a nice problem to have, but I'm like, I'm even now, like earlier today, I was setting up some new Google ad campaigns for a new <laughs> online course that I'm running with some friends because that seemed fun. And then after this podcast, I was thinking, right. okay, I need to write tomorrow's email newsletter. We can repurpose this podcast into 18 bits of content. Your thoughts and work are really interesting. We can repurpose that into YouTube. As, as the whole train just keeps on, just keeps on continuing. And so... Well, maybe you can, maybe you can buy a house for your brother and then he can <laughs> stop working because it sounds like he's ready yeah, well, to stop. <laughs> I mean, we jointly own the house that, that, that I live in. So <laughs> we've collectively got the roof problem sorted. Right. It's, got, it's got two bedrooms, two bathrooms. <laughs> yeah, right? It's like, yeah, it's very weird. I've spent a lot of time not working, and it's very weird. Um, I'd say living in Asia was really interesting and not working. Um, people don't really ask, like, what do you do there? Um, like, it, Taiwan might be unique, too, because, like, they have universal health care and... I think like family is like clearly much higher. Um, there's some costs to that. Um, there's a lot of family obligations and pressure. But like, um, if you were to like stop working and move back with your family, your parents would be like, "Oh, my my daughter moved back. She's, she's living with me." Like, everyone would be <laughs> like, oh, "I'm so yeah. jealous. I wish my daughter would move in with me." And yeah, um, yeah. That, kind of, that, in the UK. that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. back with your parents, you're you're a complete loser. <laughs> yeah, so there there are like other aims um, of life. Whereas like, I think it also helps to leave a city like London or like where I was, New York or Boston. Like everyone is convinced that the only way to live life is to like, you have to make a lot of money because houses cost seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and you need the seven hundred fifty thousand dollar house because you need to go to an expensive school, and then you need to go to an expensive school and get tutors because you need to get into an elite college, and it's like, wait, are you just trying to clone yourself and you're frustrated and stressed now? Like, what if you rented um, with roommates, um, with kids, and homeschooled or sent your kid to public school uh would things be okay okay. (laughs) um (laughs) and it's like i think a lot of these issues are like the people that are like doing better in today's economy like they're the ones struggling um and they shouldn't be and it's it's very confusing um because they have the economic resources to like solve their problems but um the people who are like literally kicked out of their jobs by a shutdown um, are like really struggling and like they, they want to work um, because they are doing things that like help. Um, there was something interesting that you said really early on, which I was like, I need to, I need to ask you more about this. Um, you said that 
after your 10 years in the corporate world, you decided that you weren't going to work for a while. And so you set up a podcast and started writing online and then set up an accidental YouTube channel. <laughs> so like, how, how do you think about the content as uh, versus kind of the idea of work? Yeah, so I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago for my 100th uh, newsletter uh, issue. And I maybe you're similar, but I was like a tech native growing up. I loved being online. I was always kind of like experimenting with building websites and hacking stuff and all, all sorts of things. And um, I kind of lost that. So I think when I was self-employed again, and I think just in the last five years, there's been so much energy and creative tools you can use online, kind of just experiments with a lot of stuff. So f- combining that with, I don't have a perfectionist streak, like probably to a fault, um, where it's like, oh, I'll screw around and shoot some videos and send it to a friend or post it on YouTube and see what happens. Um, Basically, it's I had a video I filmed for my coworkers in 2015 of like 14 PowerPoint hacks to make good presentations. And it got a crazy amount of views. And then I was like, well, there's a bunch of subscribers. Why not do some more videos? <laughs> and it's like these really random um, feedback mechanisms, which is like keep it going. So when I have free time, I kind of just screw around. I'm always trying to like help people and teach people. So the best feedback cycle I found was writing publicly online and then people reach out and then they ask, they ask me for advice or they ask questions and I'm like, oh, that's an interesting question. Let me write up something or let me create something for you and send it to you. Um, and that's basically the strategy I have now, which is I only want to be doing things I like doing and I want to do them with people I like doing them with. (laughs) So I'm very hesitant to like commit to anything. Um, So I create more space by design. Um, I do the things I want to do, like write and create and make sense of ideas and then just see what happens. Um, But no like explicit goals, no revenue metrics, no like... um, like I don't even hold myself accountable for like working a set amount of hours. Like I've been dealing with some health issues for the last month. I've worked very little. Um, and it does feel like cheating, but I think after those first few months in Asia, um, after moving there in 2018, where all my freelance income dried up and I was basically just wandering around in parks and reading books and trying interesting food and trying to make friends. Uh, I just became a lot more comfortable with just like sitting with myself and being okay with it. Oh, nice. (laughs) How, how much do you say, I think like a big driving force for people who are, you know, in the workism kind of mindset is like status and prestige and the approval of their peers and their, and, and the older generation and stuff like that. Uh, you alluded to caring about that stuff in your blog posts and things. How, uh, where, where are you on the spectrum now? And like, how do you dial that down? Like what's been helpful for you to be able to dial, up, dial that down? Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, my wife's a weirdo like me and <laughs> okay. taking a different path. I think we, we just talk a lot and support each other on these things and kind of just acknowledge like we're never going to be fully accepted. Um, and we, we just need to build comfort with that, right? 
Um, I, I think like I've talked to like my mother a lot about like my path and helping her like come up with new conceptions of it. Like I was basically teaching her to like think of me as an entrepreneur, right? Because it's not actually about me. Um, it's about her, her friends asking her, what is your son doing? Right. And if she says, I don't know, she feels ashamed, right? (laughs) These things are like multiple layers. So it's not just about me. Um, so it's about like being proactive and giving people a story of what I'm doing, um, writing about it. So like people are like, what are you doing? It's like, Oh, I wrote hundred newsletter issues about it. If you, if you want to read it, if you really care, yeah. um, it's all out there. Um, but yeah, just being okay with the fact that I might not get that status and prestige. Um, and the fact is if I do tap into something that makes a lot of money, I will get status and prestige. Um, Am I happy about that? No. Like, do I wish I got more credit for just talking with random people around on the internet about their challenges with their work identity eight to 10 times a month? I do wish that was higher status. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I I wrote an article about this too. Like, um, try to find your own prestige economy, right? So, we award prestige based on the systems we're in. I think this like Twitter, I don't idea web kind of like nerd Twitter. Um, there's a lot of status awarded by just like helping people and sharing ideas. Um, I had no idea, uh, your backgrounds really until I started looking into it. Um, my wife was like, Oh, he's the, he's the doctor. Um, YouTube guy. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> and I had to like look it up, but I had just shared a lot of interesting back and forth with um, your brother and genuine curiosity, um, openness, vulnerability, and sharing of ideas. And that was like, those are the people I want to connect with. And that's been a saving grace in today's world where you walk around a lot and people um, want to know where you stand politically or they want to make you feel bad about how bad the world is. I don't know. Like, I don't know what I, I just can't operate on that level. I need to have some optimism and generosity and engage with those kind of people. It sounds like for you, like finding a partner, you know, a a life partner, if you will, who is also kind of weird and gets this stuff and is on board with figuring things out, uh, as you guys go along, like, at what point did you guys actually meet and uh, sort of during your, your journey? <laughs> yeah, so I got lucky. I blew up my life before I found the partner. Because <laughs> um, I, I, that can be really hard, right? If you suddenly wake up and you tell your wife, like, I don't want this million-dollar house anymore. And I'm not sure I want to work in investment banking anymore. Uh, damn, that's, that's tough. Um, but yeah, I... So I worked for a year freelancing. I moved back to Boston to save money because uh, I was burning too much cash in New York. Um, I wandered around kind of like the U.S. because I was working remotely for clients my first year. So I was mostly working in Boston. Um, and then after eight months of freelancing, I 
took that time off, started the podcast writing. I didn't have any work. Like I, I couldn't find any either. Um, so I booked a flight to Asia to visit my friend. Um, and then I combined that, turned it into a month trip to like six or seven different places. And I started working remotely there. And then I was like, oh, crap, I can spend $20 a night and live by the beach in Bali and work remotely. Um, so then I moved to Taipei where my friend uh, was living. He was my college friend who quit his job at 30, traveled the world for a year, then moved to Taipei to be an English teacher and make his Chinese better. Um, Cause he grew up uh, speaking Chinese with his mother, but not really. Um, so I went to visit him for a week and then I basically just decided on a whim, I'm going to go to Taipei because um, you can live there on a thousand a month pretty easily thousand and fifteen hundred a month so i had enough savings i hadn't really spent down my savings um because i made enough from freelancing i just said i'm just gonna go for it like really open it up blank like i'm not gonna have any work because i don't know if anyone will hire me 12 hours away and i'll just see what happens um and then i i met my wife uh, via dating app i think i saw like we shared some books um we shared in common the art of learning by josh waitskin she had like in her profile and it was like hell yeah nice um (laughs) and we just met and like hit it off like immediately so like our she was in the process of leaving her job to become a fitness trainer so she quit her job and then we went and spent a month in thailand um so we like quickly tested like all the elements of like living together traveling together transitioning um And, like, we really helped each other um, as, like, I was grappling with questions. She was grappling with it. And then we lived in Taiwan, ended up getting married, and now we're, like, making it up as we go. Nice. That's sick. That's really cool. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's really cool. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to have her, I think. Um, She's quit her job again. She was a fitness trainer for a year, and she's trying to, like, reinvent her stuff. She has a podcast in Chinese um, about fitness training and she's like building communities in Taiwan and other Taiwanese people around the globe. Um, and it's really cool to like take some of the lessons I've learned and help her. Um, cause that's what fires me up is like helping other people do this stuff. And like, I, I basically want to make more friends for myself. Right. So if I can get like 50 other people to like hack a living by creating online, I have like 50 other people to hang out with who understand that um, you can take time off on a Wednesday to go for a bike ride, right? Um, and I don't know. We'll see where we'll see where it ends up 10 years from now. Nice. I mean, it's, it sounds like you kind of met your now wife pretty, pretty soon into the whole unplugging from the system thing. But like when you were taking the, the plunge, was there ever any, like were you ever concerned of like, okay, I'm, I'm now being like officially really weird and this will seriously, sort of, this might make it more difficult for me to find like a life partner because, you know, most people aren't this weird in terms yeah. of work stuff and they probably yeah. have more traditional conceptions of, of how you should live. Yeah, I'd given up completely. Um, oh, bef- wow, bef- okay. <laughs> before I moved to Taipei, I was telling my friends like, I think my life goal is to like be the cool uncle, like really spend a lot, <laughs> spend a lot of time. And I was, I was 
bullshitting myself. My my friends say this to me now. They're like, you always wanted like to be married and like have a family. Like that's part of you. And it's like, yeah, well, it's pretty obvious now. Um, but yeah, I I had really given up, and I think it's all tied together with the work stuff because I was in Boston and try, in New York and trying to date and like you tell people like. I want to live life so that we can take six months off every year. And they're like, what? Like, how will we afford the Hamptons? Or like, <laughs> yeah. don't you want vacations? It's like, no, don't you realize you don't need a vacation if you're not oriented around a five-day work week? And people are just like, mm, I don't know. Doesn't, doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, I've, I mean, I've also gotten like progressively weirder as I've gained more evidence that you can live in different ways, live different countries, and um, fail in many different ways. Yeah. So have you have you got any uh, pro tips on the uh, the traveling front? Uh, I was I was I was mentioning to you guys just before we started recording that I've recently become enamored with the idea of road tripping across Europe um, and then just living in a different city for a month at a time and then just, you know, still making two or three YouTube videos a week, but then just sort of play, playing the rest by ear, taking taking things as they come. So I would challenge you to go to a place for two months and not make any YouTube videos. Oh, <laughs> Like that's a big challenge. I think the best part of traveling is when you like settle in a place for a month or more. Um, I have I've done the like one week at a time different place traveling, and that kind of stresses me out. I think my wife and I were more like one month minimum, um, just to like it's really cool to like plug into a place, start to figure out your local supermarket, um, figure out some places you like going back to find a routine. Um, and just seeing it work in different locations. Um, I think the key with traveling is like creating space and creating time. Um, so plan a lot less, um, in terms of work than you think. Um, because it, it takes a lot more to like get situated. The first week, you're just like finding your bearing. Or the first few days in a place, you're just like trying to figure out where to get food um, and how to use the subway or the bike system. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, there's many different ways you could do it. But yeah, that, that would be my challenge to you. Um, and then I can interview you on my pad, podcast um, about <laughs> how you're grappling. Because I've interviewed a few people who have done like uh, work sabbaticals. I talked to this um, woman, Jacqueline Jensen, um, who created a work sabbatical for herself where she wouldn't work. And like it was really painful for her because she was like very successful, crushing it, founded startups, um, and basically just been like working hard her whole life. And she created like a basically like non-work sabbatical for herself over three months. And she said it took about two months until she could like wake up and not think about work. So uh, well, one thing that I struggle with, and again, this is a good problem to have, is that because everything is going so well on the content front and it feels like living life using a cheat code, I have this sort of... Uh, 
I, I have this fear that it's all a house of cards that's going to come crumbling down at any moment. And so regardless of how big the numbers get, I always think, okay, you know, I'm only, you know, if I, if I stop making videos for even a week, then the algorithm is not going to like me anymore. And then people are going to start, then the numbers are going to start dipping and eventually I'm going to be homeless and destitute. And uh, I think, yeah, do you, how do you avoid thinking in those in those sorts of ways and being more and, and and being okay with the inherent risk that would come with not having a a job that's churning your income and keeping keeping things growing yeah i think i think my large extended family gives me a lot of freedom because there's i mean they do have resources they would it's not as much that they would give me money if i ran out but i would i always have a home to come back to and i'm never gonna have to worry about food because they'll feed me um, and so it's not that bad. I think it's harder for you because you're making money, but the best, um, experience for me was going those first few months on my own without making any money. First three months, I didn't make any money. And then again, uh, six months in for a few months. And then again, when I moved to Taipei, so like realizing, okay, I'm okay. There's no money coming in. And like, really, I'm just trying to make friends um, because if, okay, if you, if you run out of money, I will just send you some cash or you can, st- <laughs> or you can stay with me wherever I am. But I'm serious. That's a real offer. Like I'm, I'm really offering that. Like, I think what this, this stuff that concerns me about all this work stuff is that we now think we have to pay for everything, Right it's bullshit. Like we can just say like, Hey dude, I love you. I'll feed you. I'll house you. Like you can (laughs) stay on my couch. Like we don't do that enough. Like it's, we don't even ask our friends to stay at their places anymore because it's easier to book a hotel. That's crazy. We need to remember (laughs) that like life's a little more fun and interesting, maybe a little more uncomfortable too if we like impose on people a little more it's a real gift to some people to say like hey will you help me that's a that's a really good point i think i i think what's interesting at least at least for me is that for example yeah even for me like i have I have no worries that I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to end up homeless and unable to eat right. because I can just stay at my mom's place or I can, I can come over to your place. And so the fear of not continuing to make videos is not really a fear of ending up homeless and starving. It must be some kind of internal, you know, I, I need to keep, like internal drive to keep the prestige level, the prestige indicators up, to keep the bank balance growing, to keep that like all of the numbers trending in the right direction. But do you like it? Rather than any, yeah. I I enjoy it. It's it's fun making the videos. Yeah. Then yeah. keep doing so, it. And like, don't worry about the other stuff. <laughs> I don't know. If, it feels like, Paul, you have a different, I mean, you, you have a YouTube channel and stuff, but my impression that I get of you, Ali, is that you, you, you enjoy making the videos, but it, there is also a sense of like a work style formula of, okay, I have to make X videos a month or something. Like, mm you enjoy it but like there's a sense of i have to do it for reasons whereas paul i don't know how like uh, how do you think about it um yeah i i try to avoid anything where i have like 
an implicit contract with an audience or something. So I think we have these ideas, but like, um, I'm trying to think. So like I followed Tim Ferriss, um, for a while. And I, I think what was interesting about him is that he took his listeners in many different directions. And now he's exploring a whole another direction of like psychedelics and mental health, right? It's really, that's interesting, right? I, I follow somebody because they're curious um, and like it takes courage for them to take you into a new space, even though he was probably afraid he'd lose listeners. And maybe he has lost listeners, but if you're doing things you don't want to be doing, like I've met Instagrammers that fall into this trap and the algorithm clearly tells you what to do. I think Instagram, YouTube is a little, we don't have as much um, granularity on the algorithm for YouTube, but like Instagram clearly tells you what to do. And over time, if you let it tell you what to do, you're suddenly creating for something else and not for yourself anymore. And I think it's about the courage to like take, your audience in a new direction i guarantee if you posted a video that was like i'm gonna do this two-month experiment um if it fails it's all paul's fault and he has to feed me for the rest of my life but um i guarantee your audience would be like oh this is really interesting (laughs) like you have a lot of productivity videos and everyone that does productivity also struggles with like their relationship with the work I can imagine like last week I put out a video entitled how I watch TV productively and it was kind of tongue-in-cheek <laughs> kind of because of the, there's this Chrome extension that lets me watch anime at 3x speed so I I skip through the boring bits and slow down for the fight scenes <laughs> and I got absolutely lambasted online people saying you are you know this this is what is wrong with the world today the fact that you feel the need to watch anime at triple speed what is wrong with you but that that cracks me up right like remove the word product if you remove the word uh productively that that's just that's just really interesting about you that's really weird too (laughs) right i want to know like a lot more about like why you're watching at 3x to watch the fight videos like the interesting part is like your interest in the fight videos has nothing to do with productivity um yeah right <laughs> but yeah it was more a, yeah. a provocative kind of title that i knew people would be like oh right <laughs> um but but yeah i mean there's a little bit of gamesmanship of like titling things um and stuff but yeah it, it sounds like you're still just creating things that are interesting to you yeah the the thing that i try and, and think about that the the bigger the, number, the sort of the the view counts and subscriber counts get the lower I try and have my own bar for quality uh, <laughs> because and 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 I, I I tell myself that I'm 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 trying to be more okay with shit posting on YouTube like I would on Twitter and Instagram. Right. Because right. as as you become a slave to the algorithm, there is that there's very much that pressure to continue being a slave to the algorithm. And so I try and kind of actively work against that by being okay now I'm just gonna I'm not gonna plan a video, I'm not gonna think about title and thumbnail, I'm literally just gonna talk and, and see what happens. And some of those videos do really well where it's just like a half an hour ramble of me yeah. talking about how I think about medicine as it relates to work and what, what that means. And those do just happen to do really well because people are like, oh, I actually like hearing your thoughts for half an hour at a time just about why medicine isn't as fulfilling as you once thought it was. Well, it's, ma- it's making me think there's like this cycle, right? And for people listening, I'm drawing like a um, normal curve. Um, 
that's like my, my my wife watched some of your videos and was like you need to get better cameras <laughs> and so but i think there's something cool about getting a better camera because you get a better camera and it forces you to create better stuff and creating better stuff forces you to learn and that's really fun especially at the beginning so then you move up the curve and then you have really high quality stuff but then you can mistake the quality for what people are watching for right and they're probably watching you not the quality of the video um but then you need to like kind of go back down the curve to like loose to like use the platform you've built to like then explore and like have more fun and like not optimize for like you don't want to go up to like 4k cameras and like a <laughs> professional studio for some people that might be the right path because that's what they enjoy but i think that's where people get trapped right you have these super famous people and they all say the same thing don't follow my path <laughs> i burnt out like it's funny, like Gary V seems to be the only person with a huge following who's still having fun. Um, and I, I think that's what makes him interesting. Everyone else talks about burnout. Like, like it's like you see all these Instagram people, they all make like they go up the curve and they don't go down and loosen up and have more fun. They go up here and then they post the video about mental health and burnout and it's like, don't go up. Don't keep going up. Like, go down, have more fun, loosen up, and see what happens. Um, yeah, that's a that's a really good way of putting it. Um, so, I uh, for for a bit of context, I've I've had this thing on my on my website for the last few years where it's it's kind of like a, a standing offer that if anyone is happens to be in Cambridge and then I'll I'll buy them a coffee if they want to hang out. Uh, stolen from uh, what's the name? Um, Sivers or Seth uh, Godin or something? Uh, Patrick McKenzie. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Pa Patio Eleven. Patio Patrick Eleven. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so over the last few years, I've I've met up with a few dozen people who just happen to be passing through Cambridge. And so yesterday, I had I had lunch with someone who's been following me on YouTube since like kind of the the second week that I've, I was making random vlogs in Cambodia in like 2017. That's awesome. And he was. And 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 he, and he was making this exact point. He was saying because I was I was I was saying to him that I'm not really sure where the content should go and, and this sort of stuff. And he was saying that like at the at this point you've got the quality down. People are actually following you a lot. A, a lot of people are following you for your personality. So if you if you started doing more more like a raw uh, raw less produced like sort of day in the life vlogs or something where you're just filming with your iPhone rather than having to rely on having 18 tripods and a different light setup around right. the house. That would probably be quite relatable and quite interesting. And I was like, whoa, no way. Because <laughs> I guess in, in my head, it's a case of it has to be 4K, you know, super, super high quality. Otherwise, it's not worth putting out. And so that's a, a thing I'm trying to quash down. Yeah, I think those are the interesting people, right? It's I always send drafts and stuff to the people that like cheered me on when nobody read any of my stuff. Because um, they'll be honest and they'll also like call you out when you're bullshitting. <laughs> Um, and those people are great, um, because they actually are interested in you and not like what your production quality is, um, <laughs> whether you're a worker, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, yeah, I, I, I love the idea of the coffee conversations. I've been doing something on my website called a curiosity conversation. I stole it from Brian Grazer, who is a movie director. And I've had this on my site since I started, um, 
my blog and at the end of 2017 and I've had probably 200 conversations with people around the world and I just say anyone can book a talk with me to talk about anything every Wednesday I have like two or three calls and I never know what's going to happen I've talked to people from probably I don't know 25 30 countries all sorts of people and it it's really cool yeah that's a great idea (laughs) um it's also just a way to like open up the channels because I think when you're creating online, um, I talked to somebody last week and they were like, oh, I've been reading your newsletter for two years. I love it every week. And I'm like, why don't you email me and tell me that? Because <laughs> a lot of times I'll just send out my newsletter you, crickets, right? You don't hear anything back. And like, I, I love doing it because I love writing and I love exploring ideas, but it's like, I, I was thinking about how do I create less friction such that like I can actually connect with the people because I don't think I'm some sort of like super guru or expert. I'm actually like equivalent to the person that's reading me. If they're curious in what I'm writing, I'm curious about why they're curious too. And I want to know what they can add to the conversation. Nice. So uh, what, so is, is the setup for this that you have like a, just like um, a scheduling link that gives you, one of three time slots on Wednesdays. Like, how, how, how does it look like in practice for you to arrange these? Oh, yeah, I can. I mean, it's just a link on my website. I have it like on my homepage. Um, and then I just have like a short explanation and just links to it Calendly. Um, and I made a uh, short YouTube video about uh, my experiences with it too. Oh, that's awesome. Right. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to st- steal that idea if you don't mind. <laughs> no, definitely. I've had 10 people, I think, steal it probably. It's like, I, I want everyone to do this because I think what I saw was, okay, I, I've learned a lot from Tim Ferriss, but when he's like, when you, when you have all these inbound requests, you need to make sure you automate, block all your email. Nobody can contact you, protect <laughs> yeah. your calendar. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do that. Like, I want to make it easy for people to connect with me. Um, of course, if it ever got to the point where I had 40 calls a week and I had a 40 hour um, I, I couldn't handle that mentally, but, um, I don't know. I'd still want to think about ways where people can just connect with me. Cause I talk to the most interesting people, um, who are just like curious and trying to find their own way. Yeah. I, th- I think like the, the sort of time boxing thing of like, you know, every Wednesday afternoon I've carved out this time where I'm just going to talk to random people kind of helps because I feel like. Yeah, I feel like even at my, at my sort of relatively small level of, you know, internet following or whatever, yeah, you get lots of DMs and things of like, hey, like, I'd we love to chat sometime. We should chat sometime kind of thing. Let's get a coffee kind of thing. And it just feels like, well, I can't say yes to all of them, but also like I, I need some kind of system for, for actually doing this. And I think, yeah, carving out like some time every week kind of solves that problem very nicely. Yeah, p- picking a day is good because... I had it open like eight to six every day. <laughs> and then I just had all these oh, random wow. calendars. <laughs> and um, I basically realized over time I needed to like structure my work week and <laughs> to be creative and actually get in flow states. Yeah, I've I've started to realize that recently. So because uh, sort of for the for the last few months, every uh, every week we'll get like a handful of emails from people wanting to meet up in Cambridge for a coffee. 
Um, and we've been, been, I've been putting them off saying that, you know, from August, once I'm unemployed, I'll have all the time in the world. And now from August the 5th, suddenly had like a deluge of emails from all these people wanting to meet up for coffee. Um, and, and this was fine. But then I found that sort of like my calendar for the next two, two weeks is like completely chock-a-block with these random one hour, one hour meetings and like podcast recordings here and there. So I was thinking, okay, I need to be like maybe Tuesday afternoons, I will station myself in a coffee shop in town and whoever wants to come can just come and have a chat. Um, and then just leave that open to as like a, yeah. a, a sort of structured way of doing but it. But that's, that's really interesting, right? Like if that was a job, you wouldn't think it was weird, right? Let's say you worked in sales, you'd just be meeting with people every day. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, just think of the people you're meeting. I'm sure people are like really excited to like connect with you. They've been like following your story and, um, that's, I mean, that's work and like that's giving back and contributing to the community. Yeah, I guess. I'm, yeah, I think I'll, I'll enjoy the conversations. It's just that thing of like, as you know, like once your calendar is booked, with yeah, these yeah. little one hour slots, you have yeah, yeah. so little time to actually do creative work. And But conversation is creative work. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. That's I, I think that's a good point. One yeah. thing I always rail against Ali for is always thinking about like material output yeah. like mm. i think for you yeah. create creative work is like churning out content oh and, yeah and, and you use the phrase churning and i think you kind of joke about it yeah. sort of tongue-in-cheek of like oh got, gotta churn out the content you know as if someone's forcing you to do it or something yeah and i'm always trying to tell you to like read more random pdfs read more books that aren't on kindle that haven't been recommended by gary <laughs> or tim ferris and stuff and and then you say this thing of like well, look, I'll do that eventually, but right now I need to like make videos because it's going really well. I'm I'm making money and stuff, uh, and so I've been trying to hammer this like <laughs> meaningful creative work is not necessarily like creating some tangible thing, you know. Have you changed your view on that? I think like a couple of months ago we had a podcast where I was saying this. I was saying like, why? Look, seriously, man, why don't you read like some seriously interesting books? And I think you actually said, look, once I quit my job then I will have more Then I won't have to churn out content like in all of my spare time. And then I'll have time to actually explore my interests. That's kind of what you said. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've now been unemployed for the last three days. Uh, and I am, it's possibly a bit of a cop out, but I feel like I'm catching up on all of the random bits of admin that I, that, that I've been sort of letting pile up. Um, at the moment, what I'm thinking is that I'd like to get to a sort of setup where I will carve out kind of one day a week where it is for churning out YouTube videos and then one day a week to kind of hang out with people, do do coffee meetups, and then the rest of the time sort of unencumbered, unstructured, just mm -hmm. like do whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I was thinking I, I've started kind of building up a reading list of like more weird esoteric things um, to explore during that time. Maybe that's a cop out, but that's kind of the way I'm thinking about it at the moment. Okay. Yeah. That's good. I mean, give yourself a couple months just to, like, be unemployed. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> You'll figure it out. Yeah. Uh, so, look, before we wrap up, I think there's, I, I think, so whenever we do these podcasts, I always have, like, a thread running in the back of my mind of, like, okay, how are people going to uncharitably interpret this? <laughs> I think one very obvious way in which people are yeah. going to uncharitably interpret yeah. this whole podcast episode is, okay, this is, like, 
three really privileged right. dudes who are yeah. whining about how having a job is so bad and how it's been really hard for them to, you know, not have a job and still have enough money to <laughs> to live a comfortable life and stuff like that. Like, what what would you say to people who? I mean, I think yeah, objectively, uh, just speaking for me and Ali, I think we're extremely privileged. Uh, sort of financially and in terms of always having somewhere to go back to where there's a roof and food and stuff like that. You've also kind of mentioned this. Like, what would you say to people who are kind of stuck in, in a workism kind of mindset and lifestyle, but, you know, they don't necessarily have that level of privilege where they can just quit their job and doss around and, and just think about random stuff yeah. while walking around in Taipei. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um... Yeah, it, it's always an interesting um, chain of logic. I'm not sure the end point of your privilege means you should stay in a high-wage job. Oh, I, right? yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Well, totally agree. I'm trying to unpack this. Um, and the I definitely am aware of this, right? If, if you're born in, like, the Western nations, Australia, UK, there's a bunch of them. And you go to college, you basically can earn a lot of money relative to most other countries. Um, Like you, you can live in many, many, many countries on a thousand dollars a month, which is pretty easy for many people in the U S to earn. Um, Now I've, I made a lot of compromises. So like when I uh, left New York, I had like a nice apartment. I spent a lot of money. I moved in with four like 23 year olds in a five bedroom house, like in a distance away from downtown Boston and dramatically reduced my rent to like save up, save money. Um, and, uh, I made sacrifice, like I stopped going out to eat with friends. I cooked at home. I like, so I made like dramatic life changes that I think a lot of people could make. And then I think the interesting thing that kind of shifted things for me is meeting people around the world who have much less and seem to make much braver decisions than some of my peers making a lot of money in the U.S. So I think sometimes like the privilege conversation almost traps people more into not doing something they're like oh i can't go to this country and just like hang out because uh, it it just doesn't follow that right so i think by spending time in other countries meeting other people meeting people of different backgrounds i've become a nicer person i've become more generous i've engaged more with my free time locally like i do the same thing you do um in cambridge with like I've done a lot in Taipei, like people always try to like pay me or offer me things. Um, but I just help people. Uh, I've helped local businesses build websites. I've helped people interview for jobs to be a pilot. I've helped people with their resume. I've helped people learn English. Um, so it's, there's a lot more ways to engage with the world than making money. And I think part of the problem with politics in the West is that um, we tend to look at everything as a financial calculus. Um, so like the problems with society are that people don't have enough money, right? Um, and that, I think, traps us in seeing the ways for connection, generosity. And those things matter, and there are inequalities. 
Um, but like, I mean, my wife was not making very much money. Taiwanese average salary is like seven grand US a year. Um, but in many ways, like I think some of those people are a lot better off than people in the U S like they have universal healthcare. They have a much tighter community of family. And she saved like $3,000 and then quit her job and traveled for three months. Uh, and that was all the money she had. Uh, that takes a lot more guts than me. Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> is she like, is she coming from privilege? Like maybe relative to some other people, of course. Um, but I think there's a lot more opportunities and ways to live life. Um, I'm consciously aware of privilege everywhere I go in the world. If you're a white guy traveling, uh, that's, that's like the best situation, right? Um, so, and my wife is of a different race from a different background. So I'm constantly aware of things from her perspective too. So yeah, it's, but yeah, that, that's such a default response from high wage knowledge workers in the West. Um, and then I go across the world to Indonesia and meet people who never went to college, who are just like hacking a living as a digital photographer. And it's like, this person has a lot more imagination for the possible ways to live life. Um, and my online course I run, the most enthusiastic people are people from low wage countries. Um, and I have a gift program where they can name their price they want to pay for my course. They almost like categorically finish online courses and people don't finish online courses. Um, the U.S. people will pay full price and then not open it again, which is great. They can fund my um, support of people from around the world. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah, I think that's the thing you learn when you travel is these conversations are different everywhere, right? And there's different conversations of privileged classes in Taiwan that are incomprehensible unless you've lived there for a year. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think that the traveling and seeing other alternative ways to live really kind of shifts the, the privilege scale quite a lot as to like how much that's sort of stopping people from doing things. And I feel like... I feel like there's like a there's, there's also a bit of like a privilege trap where I have like lots of friends who also went to good universities and yeah, things. Right. And yeah, right. then you're kind of comparing yourselves to your peers who also did those things and suddenly like there's a much higher economical bar that you have to reach to kind of keep up with the Joneses and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I just flat out flat out challenge people. People are scared to admit they want a lot of money. Like if people if people were more honest about that, they wouldn't have to BS themselves about wanting to like travel or work a lot. Like I've made thirty to forty grand for the last three years uh, in the U.S. Uh, my peers would die <laughs> if they if they had to like move into my life. Wait, but is I'm, that thirty grand per year or per month? <laughs> no, per year. Um, <laughs> But that's been like, I've covered my cost of living. I've probably broken even, um, only in the last six months have I started to save and invest for the future again. Um, and if money goes down again, I'll have to tighten up and you figure it out. Um, I think me and my wife figured out we could probably live on a thousand a month in Taiwan. Um, and like 
I have family there now too. So it's like, that's kind of a place um, where I'll always feel at home too. Actually, final thing that I'll be curious to get your take on. I feel like with all these conversations about, you know, if, if you want to call it like becoming more enlightened about a certain thing, uh, I think you can get stuck in like a local optimum where you're, for example, unenlightened, but with a high paying job and you have like yeah. various badges of prestige, yeah. like good university, brand name, uh, company or whatever. And going, you know, it feels like you could do worse things than play the prestige game for a little bit, maybe until 21, 20, 21 through 25, and then choose to become enlightened about these things. Whereas, you know, if you, if you tell some like 40, if, if you try and enlighten some 14 year old, I, I'm concerned that it, it just might go horribly wrong. And maybe it is sensible to kind of, you know, be, be unenlightened for a bit <laughs> before come, like unplugging. Yeah. So I, I think a couple things are happening. I, I've noticed that the ages are getting younger when people are like opting out of the default paths. Like I'm talking to people that are like in college with job offers from big firms that are like rejecting it and saying like, screw it, I'm just going to start it. So I think what's happening there is people have just like people have lost faith in the American dream, the British dream, whatever that default dream is in their country. Um, it's reached a critical mass where the myths have kind of crumbled. We don't have myths to replace them. Uh, so many people are just saying, screw it. I'll just figure it out on my own. I think I'm always a strong advocate of going to these big institutions or organizations because you learn, um, you basically get space to play and learn skills and try things and kind of wander around a company if you're aggressive enough to experiment in different ways. So I've been playing with the idea of like the 10 year career. And I think we'll see a narrative emerge around this. Maybe something like what Ali's doing too is like you go become a doctor, but then you take a few years off and explore things. And maybe you come back to being a doctor with a little more wisdom of life and combining it with other things, right? Like I can only imagine how much you could help people um, like with your medical knowledge and creativity and productivity and like the insecurity of like carving your own path. Like that's like everyone in today's society, like everyone needs, needs those skills. I don't need a, any more doctors that like only know how to read a scan and pr suggest a surgery. Right. We don't, we don't need that. We need like compassionate, creative, interdisciplinary thinkers, um, that can help us. Yeah, that kind of went off on a tangent, but um, <laughs> no, I think that's a, that's a great note to end on. Yeah, awesome. Well, Paul, this has been amazing. Thanks so yeah. much for chatting. Thank you very uh, much. We'll we'll place links to all your various things uh, in the show notes. Uh, is there anything you'd like to tell people where they can find you online? Uh, yeah, think boundlesscom um, or boundless.substack.com, and then the YouTube I mentioned is my Strategy U channel. Um, so if you go to strategyu.co, um, you'll find my strategy consulting videos. I have a personal one, but, um, there's not much going on over there. Maybe one day. Um, but yeah, just dream bigger, I think is my challenge to people and explore all the opportunities we have in the world. There are a lot of challenges. There are a lot of things that are not going well in the world right now, but there's also, um, a lot of possibility, um, 
for love, generosity, creativity, the things we've been doing forever as humans. Love it. And, it, Great and if Ali does Great this stuff. experiment and stops creating videos and his channel crashes, it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. I'll come stay with you and you can feed Perfect. me for a few, yeah. a few weeks. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the Apple Podcasts website if you're not using an iPhone. There's a link in the show notes. If you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for new podcast topics, we'd love to get an audio message from you with your conundrum, question, or just anything that we could discuss. Yeah, if you're up for having your voice played on the podcast and your question being the springboard for our discussion, email us an audio file mp3 or voice note to hi at notoverthinking.com. If you've got thoughts but you'd rather not have your voice played publicly, that's fine as well. Tweet or DM us at nOverthinking on Twitter, please. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.